I don't know about you, but I remember uh, anticipating uh, Christmas Day was just uh, incredible for a, a kid, isn't it? I mean, you, 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 get to, you finally get to Christmas Eve and you've had your Christmas Eve dinner and your mom and dad are telling you to go to bed and you're looking at them like, what? What are you talking about? I can't go to bed right now. Christmas is tomorrow. As a child, I had the hardest time going to sleep on Christmas Eve. Can anybody resonate with that? How many of you adults can still resonate with that? Okay, a few of you. All right, all right. So it's not, it, it doesn't uh, grow old as you get old. But, uh, you know, it's hard, it's hard to go to bed on Christmas Eve because you're anticipating what's going to happen the next day. And you're, 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 as, as you fall asleep, you're dreaming and dreaming and just having these glorious uh, visions of what is going to be found under the Christmas tree when you wake up the very next morning. Well, this morning and for the next few Sundays, I want to talk a little bit about Christmas dreams and Christmas visions. I want to talk a little bit about people who have dreamed dreams and had visions about Christmas Day. Only these dreams and these visions are not from a child's perspective. They're not the kind of dreams and visions that a child has when he goes to bed on Christmas Eve. No, these dreams and visions are those that accompanied the birth of Christ 2,000 years ago. Every year at Christmas time, preachers are challenged to come up with something new, to tell the same story, the same old story again for the first time. And this time, as we enter the season of Advent, I'd like you to join with me in looking at some stories of Christmas visions and Christmas dreams. So the title of my message today, as I've already said a few times, is Christmas dreams and Christmas visions. And this will be part one of that message. And for the next few Sundays, we're going to be looking at this idea of dreams and visions. In fact, not only this Sunday will that be the case, but also next Sunday on December the 20th, we will, con- we will continue part two of this series. And then on December 27th, we're going to ask an especially peculiar question. We're going to say, okay, now that we've analyzed the dreams and visions of people that accompanied Christmas Day, what do we say about dreams and visions today? What have the Scriptures said about these kinds of things, these kinds of experiences? And do they have merit today? What role do they have in our modern day, if any? But that is for a couple Sundays from now. And so you'll want to mark your calendars for that if if that's a topic that interests you. But for this Sunday and the next, we want to focus in specifically on the visions and dreams that people had both before, during, and immediately after the birth of Christ. We're going to be answering four questions. I have four questions for us to consider this morning. Number one, we're going to ask the question, well, what is a dream? What is a vision? And is there a difference between the two? What is a dream? What is a vision? And is there a difference? Number two, we're going to ask the question, what are some uh, noteworthy characteristics 
of divine dreams and visions. What are some noteworthy characteristics of these kinds of things, particularly the ones surrounding the birth of Christ? Number three, what was the purpose of the dreams and visions surrounding the birth of Christ? What, what role did they play? What are some things we can glean from those dreams and visions? And number four, how do these dreams and visions give us hope this Christmas? How do dreams and visions that were 2,000 years ago have any relevance for our lives today in 2009? So let's begin with question number one. Let's focus in on question number one. What is a dream? What is a vision? And is there a difference? You know, the, in the New Testament, the word vision uh, is the word uh, harama. And there's actually three different words for vision in the New Testament, but it basically, the English translation is a very accurate translation. When you see the word vision, it is defined almost exactly how you might anticipate it to be defined. And the word dream, which is anar, is also pretty much how it sound, uh, pretty much how it's defined in English. So these words that are used in the New Testament for vision and dream very easily translate into English. And I want to I want to analyze here just for a moment. What is a dream? What is a vision? Is there a difference? First, the terms for dream and vision are sometimes used interchangeably in the scriptures. That's the first point. So these terms if you look at those two texts, and there are others that we could, we could look at, but we don't, we're not going to spend our time and purpose in that today. But we would take note that occasionally, particularly in the Old Testament, the terms for vision and dream were often used interchangeably. They could be the same thing or more or less the same thing. Going on though, however, the New Testament usually reserves the term dream for a one-sided declaration from the Lord or His messenger to a person's mind while they are sleeping. So, here we have the word dream now. And when we think of dream, we automatically think, okay, yeah, the person's sleeping. I get that. Well, oftentimes in the New Testament, it was not only some, uh, an experience that took place while the person was asleep, but it was a one-sided experience. It was a one-sided exchange. It was the Lord or an angel of the Lord speaking to the human person's mind. No dialogue taking place. The Lord was simply giving a declaration or a message to their mind. That when they woke up, they understood that message. Third, the New Testament generally uses the term vision for a conscious, full sensory, supernatural experience that often allows for dialogue between a person and the Lord or His messenger. And so here we see something a little bit different. We see a little nuance here uh, in the New Testament. So the, uh, uh, whereas a dream, they're asleep. In a vision, they're very much awake. They're very much conscious of their surroundings. And it is a full sensory experience. They can talk and touch and feel and hear they can have dialogue between themselves and the Lord or His messenger. That usually epitomizes a vision distinct from a dream. Fourth, uh, both experiences draw the person into a heightened spiritual realm that often temporarily transforms their physical surroundings. 
And other people may or may not be able to witness the vision of another, even though they may be standing right next to the one receiving the vision. I think most prominently of Paul on the Damascus Road. You know, the men that accompanied him, they heard, they heard the Lord, but they couldn't see this vision that Paul was having. It says in Acts chapter 9. They heard the, they heard the vision, so they, they had a component of it going on there, but they did not see what Paul was seeing. Today we're going to look briefly at just two visions. And this is, uh, I'll be honest, at the end of this message you'll be going, but I want more than that. Because I'm saying that at the end of this message. I'm finishing this message. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to parse these messages out and separate them. And at the end of this one, I'm saying, but I want more. But keep in mind that we need to set the table. We need to prepare the meal so that later on we can enjoy the feast of this study. And so if today, if these two visions today get you start asking for more, get you start wanting more information, and, and, and greater understanding of these things, hang tight. Because in the next two Sundays, we'll begin to start enjoying the feast a little bit more. But today, just two visions that we want to take a look at. Two visions that accompanied the birth of Jesus Christ. This Sunday, we're going to be looking at the vision of Zacharias in Luke chapter 1. And we're also going to be looking at the vision of Mary in Luke chapter 1. And then next Sunday... We will look at the dreams of Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, the vision of the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, and the dream of the wise men in Matthew chapter 2. So here's our, here's our plan of attack. First, let's take a look at the vision of Zacharias. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 5. And let's, uh, let's go to verse 10 here as we set the stage, as we prepare the table for our studies in dreams and visions surrounding the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well advanced in years. And so it was that while he, Zechariah, Zacharias was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord and the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Okay, just a few preliminary things about this story. Here we have a man named Zacharias. It says that he was a priest of the division of Abijah and as a priest in the house of the Lord, you can anticipate that this man uh, was well respected. He had a, what we might say, a, a high social standing. He was well respected in his community. He was a priest in the temple of the Lord. People knew who Zacharias was and they respected this man. 
he was uh, he was in the upper classes, so to speak, in terms of their of his social standing. And here we see, though, there's a problem in his life. Elizabeth, his wife, is barren. And in that day and age, that was uh, that was an awful thing, an awful thing, because without an heir, uh, without an heir to your family's name, uh, there was there was great shame upon that and, and, and great dishonor. And so clearly, Zacharias has this high social standing and yet this shame to his name because he does not have a son. And so here he is in the temple of the Lord going into the temple because it was his time, his lot, the, the lot fell to him. It was his time to go into the temple to burn incense. And all the, the temple assembly is outside praying at this hour of incense. Verse 11, verse 11. And then we're going to go 11 to 16. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to Zacharias. Standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. Now, at the onset of this study, I I mentioned uh, uh, actually I may have. uh, Yeah, I mentioned four questions, four questions that we are looking at. And uh, the first question, of course, Uh, of these four questions was, what is a dream? What is a vision? And is there a difference? We answered that question and we'll continue to answer that question as time goes by. The second question is, what are some noteworthy characteristics of divine dreams and visions? And it is the second question that I'd like to zero in on right now and ask that question of what we have just read of the vision of Zacharias. So what are some noteworthy characteristics of divine dreams and visions with with respect to Zacharias's vision. Well, first, we see that fear is generally the first emotion a person experiences when seeing a divine vision. Fear. Did you catch that? The first thing that happened, the angel of the Lord appears to Zacharias near the altar of incense. And the first instinct that Zacharias has is one of fear. One of fear. Uh, we often we, we often might have the perception that to be in the presence of an angel of the Lord uh, is, a, is a perfectly peaceful experience or a perfectly uh, a quiet and calming experience. Just the opposite is the case here. Zacharias sees the angel of the Lord and he is fearful. He's troubled. He's trembling. It says this in verse uh, Verse 12 here, when Zacharias saw him, as we look at the text, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Fear fell upon him. Fear is generally the first emotion a person experiences when seeing a divine vision. But there's a second characteristic that I want to point out here this morning. And the second characteristic is this. They, the dreams and visions, they are routinely accompanied by physically verifiable 
evidence. Write that down. They are routinely accompanied by physically verifiable evidence. Now, this is not always the case in a vision. But in this case, it was. And I would, I would argue in most cases of visions in the Scriptures, they are accompanied by physically verifiable evidence. Where do we see this? Take a look again at the text. Notice carefully what the vision says. The angel Gabriel, what we're going to find his name soon, the angel says to him, hey, your wife Elizabeth is going to bear you a son. The vision is this declaration. You're going to have a son. And the angel goes on to discuss what's going to happen to that son. Zacharias is going to be able to physically verify this vision based on whether or not his wife has a son. And the same is true for so many visions in the Scriptures. The vision is given. It's a, it's a wonderful message from the Lord. And physical evidence is supplied to give that person confidence that what they are hearing is true. I think of Moses right before he uh, takes on the responsibilities that God gave him to go and to deliver his people Israel. You know, Moses said, I'm not so sure about this, Lord. How do I know that I'll, I'll have your power with me and all this, that and the other? And, and the Lord says, hey, throw down your staff. Boom, becomes a snake. And Moses says, well, I'm still not sure about it. That, that was good evidence, but I'm still not sure that, that, that you, you're going to be with me and that, that you have the power to do this through me. And he says, put your hand in your cloak. And Moses does it. He says, pull it out. It's going to be leprous. It is. Put it back in. He does. Pull it out. It'll be clean again. It is. Physically verifiable evidence often routinely accompanies a divine vision. It's not just some esoteric knowledge that, wow, I have this brand new knowledge that the Lord has given to me in a vision. No, it is physically verifiable. It can be demonstrated to be true. And that's a noteworthy characteristic of a divine dream and vision. But back to our questions. We're asking many questions as we go through this study and we're kind of we're getting little popcorn answers here and there. So hang with me. The third question is, what was the purpose of the of the dreams and visions surrounding the birth of Jesus? What was their purpose? And now I want to zero in on that question for a little bit. We're going to continue to, to go back and forth between these questions. What was the purpose of the dreams and visions surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ? Well, in this vision, the first answer we can give is this, to confirm an answer to prayer, to confirm an answer to prayer. Take a look again at the story here. Luke chapter one, verse 13. Notice what it says. It says the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. The vision that Zacharias had corresponded to a prayer that he was making. Lord, give me a son. It corresponded to that. Secondly, the purpose of dreams and visions is to give knowledge of future events. To give knowledge of future events. And closely related to that is to give instructions for future action. To give instructions for future action. Take a look at our story. Verses 13. To 17, 
we have knowledge of future events taking place, don't we? From verses 13 to, to 16 there in our, on our text, we see that he, he's going to have a son. This son's going to bring joy to him. This son's going to go on in the spirit of the Lord. He's not going to have strong, strong wine or drink. He's going to go off in the power of the Holy Spirit, turning the hearts of the children of Israel to the Lord. Zacharias is getting future uh, he's, give, he's given knowledge of future events in this vision. And closely tied to that, he's being given instructions for future action. In verse 13, right behind in yellow, we see that he's told what to name this son. Name him John. John the Baptist. He's given instructions for future <clears throat> action. And, and then one other item in the text here, as we look carefully at the text, we notice in verse 14, there's a measure of encouragement taking place, isn't there? There's a measure of encouragement given in verse 14. It says this, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at John's birth. And so a fourth aspect, a fourth uh, purpose of these dreams and visions that surrounded the birth of Christ were to encourage the hearer. To encourage the recipient, the angel came and said, look, you're going to be bolstered in your faith because of this. You're going to be encouraged because of what the Lord is about to do. And these four things accompany these kind of outline some of the purposes of this vision. And you might be asking yourself, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about dreams and visions that were related to the birth of Jesus. Not the birth of John the Baptist. And so far, this vision has only been about John the Baptist. Well, take a look at verse 17. Verse 17 says this. He, John the Baptist, will also go before him. Who's that? That's Jesus Christ. John the Baptist will also go before Jesus Christ, the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so here we see its correspondence with uh, th this vision and how it corresponds to the birth of Christ. Zacharias was not only being given a vision of the birth of his son, John the Baptist, and being encouraged by this and told of the events that were about to take place and given instruction and, and, and told that this was your answer to prayer. But he was also being reassured that the Messiah was about to be born. If John the Baptist was to go before the Messiah, that means the Messiah was not long behind. And Zacharias is now being given information, future information, future knowledge about events that are about to take place. Verse 18. And Zacharias says... To the angel, verse 18, said to the angel, how shall I know this? How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. 
Wow. So much for wishing for a divine vision, right? Here we have discipline in the vision. Here we have the Lord through the angel Gabriel disciplining one of his own for their disbelief. And as we go back to that question or what of uh, the question of what are some noteworthy uh, characteristics of divine dreams and visions? A third one really comes to mind right now uh, vividly. And it's this confidence in the reliability of the divine vision in and of itself is not guaranteed. So what do you mean by that? Simply this. We always assume that we're an angel of the Lord to come right here, right now, and declare to us a message from the Lord. We always have this assumption, we have this preconception that we would just automatically believe it. That we would be instantly persuaded. We say, Lord, can't you just reveal it in a divine vision to me? Can't you just send an angel down and tell me where to go? Can't you show me what job to take? Can't you tell me who to marry? Can't you just speak to me, Lord? Just say the word, say it out loud, and I will unmistakably hear you and follow. And Zacharias sees an angel in the temple. And he's looking at this angel. And the angel's telling him, Yeah, I've been listening to your prayers, and so is the Lord. Yeah, your prayers for a son, I know about that. Oh, son's coming. And here's all the good things that are going to happen to your son. Oh, and by the way, the Messiah is coming right after him. You're going to know these things because Elizabeth's going to get pregnant. And you're going to realize, wow, she's old. How'd she do that? And Zechariah looks this angel in the face and he hears the words and he hears the evidence and he hears the plan and he goes, how can I be sure? Are you kidding? Really? Oh, come on. Don't we have the perception that God would don't you can't you just speak to me and it'll be so clear. Can't you just send an angel and it'll be so clear. I'll listen. I promise. Just speak the words and I'll know it's you. And this story reminds me, too, of uh, in Luke 16, at the end of Luke 16, we have the story of uh, Abraham's bosom. And we have the story of, uh, of, of uh, the, 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 the rich man who did not make it to, to paradise. And he's looking over. He's looking over the, 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 the divide. And he's saying, oh, please, please, will someone, someone send... Someone send someone to my brothers and my father so that they will hear you, so that they will know what I missed out on. This man's in Hades. He's in judgment. And he's looking over at paradise and he's saying, hey, I missed it. I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't understand what it took to get to heaven. And I'm just asking you, please send to my brothers. Send, send someone from heaven. To declare to them how they might be saved so that they can avoid what I've got over here. And the response is, if they did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. 
heavenly visions, visions of angels, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, if He were to come and to speak to you, our minds, our humanity, our sinfulness, we still, just maybe, we still might have that measure of unbelief, that measure of skepticism, that measure of disbelief. And so I think this third point is critical for our understanding. Stop supposing that a divine vision would make all things right for you. Stop supposing that that all you need is the Lord to speak audibly and directly to you to figure out what you should do in life. Because it happened here, and Zacharias said, I'm just not sure what you're saying to me. Confidence in the reliability of the vision in and of itself is not guaranteed. That our humanity, our sinfulness comes into play and it, it's at war with this message. It's at war with this vision. And sometimes we fail the test. Sometimes we fail the test. But more about these kinds of things a little bit later. Verse 21, as we continue on in on this story. And the people waited for Zacharias and they marveled. These are the people that that are outside praying. The people waited for Zacharias and they marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. And so he beckoned to them and remained speechless. And so it was as soon as the days of his service in the temple were completed that he departed to his own house. And there concludes the vision of Zacharias. We've learned some things about visions and dreams in the vision of Zechariah. So we haven't learned all things. And now I want us to turn our attention to the vision of Mary. A, a final vision we'll look at this morning, and then we'll get to many more next week. And let's look at the vision of Mary and see if the things that we've said are confirmed in Mary's story. If the, the noteworthy characteristics and the purposes that we've mentioned, let's see if those things align with the story of Zacharias's vision. So stay in your Bibles and just move right on ahead to verse 26, chapter 1, verse 26 of Luke. And we're going to read the vision of Mary, the mother of Jesus. 26 to 28 initially here. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, same angel by the way, was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. A few things about this context. Mary lived in uh, Nazareth. Of Galilee, it was a simple town. In fact, it was in some cases actually known as as kind of a, a town a town of uh, ragamuffins. It's kind of a, a, a good for nothing kind of town. Some thugs there, some robbers there. It was just kind of one of those towns that you you didn't necessarily want to live in in first century Israel. So she lived in a simple town. She was a simple girl, a low lower class kind of girl, and yet. She receives a vision. An angel of the Lord comes to her. 
the angel Gabriel. And what do we see? What is the first thing we see in verse 28 about this vision? He says this. After coming in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, joy, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And so right off the bat, we have some confirmation of what we've already seen in the previous vision of Zacharias. We see that one of the purposes of a divine vision and a divine dream is to encourage, to encourage. I've highlighted uh, verse uh, 28 there on uh, the next slide there in green. I'm just we're supplementing here. We're supplementing biblical evidence for what we see about the purposes of divine visions and dreams. So here also we see, yes, the purpose is to encourage, encourage the recipient. Let's look at verse twenty nine to thirty three. It says, but when she saw him, the angel, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great. He will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. My, we see parallels here from what we saw in the previous vision. The parallels are stark. Going back to that second question of of our study this morning. What are some noteworthy characteristics of divine dreams and visions? Uh, we, we don't have a slide for this, but, but notice carefully, she's fearful. Fear is the first impression that she has. It says she's troubled. She's troubled in her being. According to verse 29, the angel senses her fear. He says, look, Mary, don't be afraid. Fear is the initial reaction. And then... Of course, the angel gives some good news with physically verifiable evidence. He says this. He says, behold, verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. The angel says, here's the declaration. Here's the message. Here's the vision. And by the way, you can know it is true by what transpires. You can know it is true by what takes place just shortly after this. What about our other question? What was the purpose of the dreams and visions surrounding the birth of Jesus? Well, here we see again it being supplemented entirely from the previous vision. We see the evidence again overwhelming. Verse 30, we see encouragement. Verse 31, we see instruction for future action. Call his name Jesus. Verses 31 to 33, we see knowledge of future events. We see all these things being supplemented from the previous vision. These same, same things being reinforced. Giving us more confidence in what we're saying about divine dreams and visions. But here's something that's unique. Well, well, in Mary's case, especially unique. Number five, we see something new. To foretell what is seemingly impossible. To foretell what is seemingly impossible. Number five. I believe I missed that on your outline, did I not? 
Yes. That's right. Fill it in. I apologize. This was a, this was a, a last edition, and I just remembered I, I forgot to include it in the handout. So this is, this is number five, and the other one's number six. Number five, to foretell what is seemingly impossible. Look at Luke 1.31. It says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, shall call his name Jesus. Mary's thinking in her head, but I'm a virgin. How is this possible? How is this possible? Notice verse 34. Notice her response. She says this. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be? How can this be? Since I do not know a man. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, uh, therefore, also that holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. How can this be? I am a virgin. How is this possible? By the way, do you hear echoes of a lack of confidence in the reliability of the divine vision? Not to the extent of Zacharias, no. Zacharias flat out said, come on now. I, I, how, how, can I, how can I know this is true? And, the, and the Gabriel looks at him and is like, well, what are you talking about? I just gave it to you. Mary, Mary's is a little bit more, the nuance is probably a little bit more confusion. She's like, but explain this to me. What, what is taking place that this could actually happen? I'm a virgin. Her confidence in the reliability of the, of the vision is a little bit rocked, despite the fact that an angel is in her presence. Her humanity is still fully intact. And she's not immediately able to just comprehend all the, all the nuances and the niceties of this vision. Verse 36 to 38, our final text here. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, Gabriel says, your relative has also conceived a son uh, in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Here we come to, at least this morning, a final purpose of a divine dream or vision, particularly those surrounding the birth of Jesus. And it is number six, to praise and honor the Lord, to bring about praise and honor to God. Mary responds to this vision and says, I'm the servant of the Lord. May, it be, may everything that you just said occur. I am in the Lord's hands. Praise and honor to the Lord. Zacharias later on, even though during the vision he was skeptical and he was uh, not sure of, of, of the reliability of the message later on when John was born and when his mouth was loosed, the first thing he did was to praise the Lord, to bring honor to the Lord's name. Again, uh, we come to the end of this message where Anne's going to answer one more question. But we come to the end of this message and we, I am feeling, and I hope you are too, I want more information here. What else is there to say about divine dreams? What else is there to say about divine visions? What are their characteristics? What are the purposes do they serve? And ultimately, what 
what do they what impact do they have for today, if any? But we're going to leave some of those questions for these next two Sundays. And so I want to leave you with a little bit of an appetite for this. But today, I do want to leave us with some hope. I want to leave us with some application. You say to yourself, well, how can this be? How does this message, how does this study even apply to me at all? We're talking about visions and dreams from 2,000 years ago. And now we want to ask, ask the question, how do these dreams and visions give us hope this Christmas. I have three responses for that initially, and there will be more. But three responses initially. First is this. The Lord visited an old man of high and respected social standing and a young woman of low status in a good for nothing town. The story of Jesus's birth and of the hope of redemption it brings is for all. It's for all. We see the vision of Zacharias, high standing, a a man In the temple, an older man. And then we we see the vision of Mary, a young girl in a good-for-nothing town of low standing. And God says, I'm going to talk to both of them. I'm going to talk to people of all shapes and sizes. I'm going to talk to all kinds of people, all kinds of social standings, regardless of race, regardless of riches, regardless of age. And I'm going to tell them about my son. Jesus Christ. It gives us hope that this Christmas message is for all. Number two, even skeptics and unbelievers and those struggling in their faith can resonate with the visions surrounding the Christmas story. Zacharias initially disbelieved an angel and Mary's mind couldn't fully comprehend the message given to her. This tells us that the Lord is patient with mankind as we try to understand the full meaning of Christmas. You know, I don't doubt there are some of you out there, even this morning, who are saying, you know, I just, I don't understand everything about Christianity. And I certainly don't understand everything about Jesus Christ. And, and sometimes you can come to church and get the impression that you have to have it all figured out. And if you don't, well, everybody else does, so you're, you're on the outside looking in. Here are two clear examples. Two people who got a vision of an angel and still had questions about it. A vision of an angel and still said, well, I'm just still not sure. Give me more evidence. Folks, if you're a skeptic, if you're an unbeliever, or if you're struggling in your faith, that's okay. That's okay. The Lord's patient with you. He was patient with me. He's patient with me when I have questions about His Word. And He slowly but surely shows me answers. And I don't expect them instantly. And neither should you. And so this Christmas, recognize that the Lord is patient. He's patient enough that even when he gives you a vision, people can still say, I still don't get it. Number three, the Lord foretold what was by all human means impossible. And yet he made good on his promises. So also he can make good on the seemingly impossible situation you may find yourself in. Trust him this Christmas, you know, the, the message that he was given to Zacharias, your wife's going to have a son. But she's old. Oh, she's going to have a son. Mary, you're going to have a baby boy. But I'm a virgin. You're going to have a baby boy. Seemingly impossible. But the Lord made good on his promise. How much more so this Christmas? Do you find yourself in a seemingly impossible situation? The Lord makes good 
on those problems. Let's close in a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, as we enter the Christmas season, as we look at the visions and the dreams that surrounded your son's birth, Lord, let these stories teach us, little by little, let these stories whet our appetite for more understanding and more knowledge of you and of the glorious truth that 2,000 years ago you sent your son to earth as a baby to grow up as a man, to die on the cross for our sins, and to rise again that by faith in him we might have life forever. Lord, help us this Christmas to focus in on that seemingly impossible Son of God that You sent to us. Father, may these dreams and visions as we study them in these coming days, may they teach us more about You. May they teach us more about the glory of this Christmas season. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.